Hello and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. Today we're talking about some of my favorite topics. We're talking about challenging the roles, the way people see who is good, who is bad, and who is a monster. We're talking about gender. We're talking about metaphors. We're talking about allegories. We're talking about knights in a modern day setting with social media. Most importantly, we're talking about the Netflix movie Nimona and just how cute and dangerous a pink rhinoceros can be. All that more after a commercial break. We have no control over. Welcome back. This is Matthew. I'm your host. Use they, them pronouns. Um, this is a movie that just came out on Netflix. If you haven't seen it, don't worry about it. We'll we'll give you some some plot details, although I definitely recommend you just hit stop and listen to it first. There will be a lot of spoilers ahead. But I watched this movie and I just instantly knew there was so much about it I wanted to talk about. And I wasn't sure who would exactly be the right person. And so I put out a, a kind of call to some of my close friends. And someone who hasn't been on the podcast before, but I've really wanted to get on the podcast, uh, responded. And that's my friend Bo. Bo is someone who I know from judging, uh, but I've really enjoyed following them on Facebook and social media and the like and hearing what they have to talk about on so many great topics. And so I'm really excited to have them on the podcast. So, Bo, why don't you uh, say hello and introduce yourself and why, uh, when I posted about this movie, you wanted to respond. Hey, so... uh Hello, everyone. My name is Bo. Um, I am a mix and match they, them, he, him, or she, her pronouns, by the way. Um, I do a little bit of everything uh, professionally. I'm a personal assistant, a game design consultant, a legal advocate, an electrician, a software developer. <laughs> um, I like to dabble. I like to try things out and explore different avenues, different facets of what appeals to me. And that's why when I saw the call to talk about this movie, Nimona, I was so excited about it because this movie is very near and dear to my heart already after it has only been out, what, a week, two weeks at this point? Mm-hmm. Um, and that same sort of idea of the like amorphous uh like flexibility and fluidity of life yeah that makes a lot of sense I mean, one of the main themes of the movie is the the need that people have that a lot of people have to put things into clear boxes and we'll talk more about that specifically but the need to classify everybody else and to decide who is good who is bad and to think what are you um and how foolish that can be so so much to talk about. I'm really looking forward to this. Let me give a quick plot summary. And also, I should say, uh, this is a – it's a movie. It's based on a graphic novel uh, by the same name that is somewhat different, but it has the same characters and a lot of the same themes and scenes. But this is kind of more of a specific origin story, whereas my understanding is that that graphic novel is more kind of like a set of vignettes involving these characters. Uh, but hopefully, I think what that means is that we'll get a whole bunch more of that. But so in the movie – we start out by learning the myth of this kingdom that uh, long ago there was this little girl uh, named – is it Glorel? Glorath. Glorath. Thank you. That Glorath uh, was threatened by a monster and was willing to, to hold a sword at the monster and say, go back into the shadows from whence you, thou came. And that that became kind of the founding myth of the kingdom. And so the, the order of knights that formed to follow her, ever since their descendants 
have been the knights that protect the kingdom from monsters. And we flash forward 2,000 years later. Now it's a very modern society. There's, you know, very much like our own, even a little bit more advanced. There's social media. There's neon lights. There's glitz and glamour. But they're still kings and, and knights. And so every, uh, every time a new group of knights is being uh, inaugurated, uh, knighted, I guess, uh, it's presented in the Glorith Dome as this big sort of huge kind of like coronation celebration thing. And this year, for the first time, something uh, crazy is going to happen. Uh, it's going to be the first time that a peasant knight, someone who isn't from uh, – they never really fully explain who the royalty is, but I think it's supposed to be clearly implied that it is the descendants of those original knights. And so the big deal this time, though, is that uh, Ballister, who is a peasant – uh, but who showed incredible bravery as a child that he is going to be knighted. And there's all sorts of concern. Is he going to be able to keep us safe? No one knows. We get to the knighting ceremony and something goes horribly wrong. A kind of laser beam shoots out of the hilt of the sword the queen is giving him and the queen is killed. And in a scene that I obviously uh, responded to quite a lot, although it's subtly done that it's easy to miss, uh, but basically uh, another knight named Ambrose who has been very clearly implied has a romantic relationship with uh, Ballister, uh, reacts and, and cuts off his arm that's holding the weapon that killed the queen. And so somehow Ballister escapes, and we cut to sometime later, Ballister is in this little cabin uh, hiding from everything, and he has built himself a, a mechanical arm. And along shows up this little girl who is maybe like – Ballister doesn't know the age of children and he's get, gets made fun of that. I think she's, she's supposed to be, I think, prepubescent, but not by much. Uh, and she is, as my spouse described her, the perfect little feral goblin child. Uh, all she wants is murder and to find his evil lair. She's kind of disappointed to find out that he doesn't think of himself as a villain. But she's there to be his sidekick and to help him get revenge on all the people he harmed. And they go through a lot of the normal kind of like getting to know each other stuff. And he doesn't want her help, but then he needs her help. She she says, you're going to get arrested. He says, of course not. And then he gets arrested. Uh, the humor in the movie is just absolute top notch. And then she shows up to help him out of prison. He makes her promise that uh, she he won't freak out when she learns what her like secret is. And it turns out her secret is she's a shapeshifter. And she can turn into all of these, like, huge animal forms, all of whom are still pink and utterly adorable, but manage to help him break out. And there's a whole scene with, like, her being a rhinoceros and a whale and all sorts of other things. They escape. He's concerned about it, but they kind of, you know, do a lot of, like, getting to know each other more, figure things out. But he keeps asking, what are you? What are you? And we see that the rest of the kingdom gets really freaked out about this. They decide that these two are both terrible people. She's a monster. He's a traitor. Ambrose, who was his love interest and then cut off his arm, is assigned to kind of take him down. And he's obviously having some real concerns about this, but he feels he must do it. There's hijinks. There's adventures. Uh, and eventually, the two of them figure out a way. They figure out that the director of the Knight Institute – the people who teach all these rules and ideas about how the world should be and how the, the kingdom should be, uh, that she actually framed Ballister because she didn't believe that a peasant could ever be a knight. And so she framed him and, and in doing so also killed the queen, who she thinks betrayed everyone 
by, by letting go the safety of the kingdom. One thing I should mention also is that the kingdom is protected by a big wall because the whole idea is that there's scary, scary monsters outside the wall and we need to stay inside the wall to be safe. So it looks like everything is fine. We they, Oh, because Ballister and uh, Nimona come up with a plan to frame the director, make the director confess her plan, and they record it. Goes out to everyone. Everyone figures it out. But the director has an ace up her sleeve. She has proof that Nimona actually is the monster from all the way back a thousand years ago that Glorith fought. And not only does Ambrose believe this, not only and, and so she's able to be like, Ambrose, you're being manipulated. You know, don't trust your lying eyes. Trust me. Trust Glorith. Trust the myths that you've always been taught. And not only does he believe it, but when he finds out, Ballister somewhat believes it. And Ballister challenges Nimona and calls her a monster. And Nimona just utterly breaks down and runs away. And we get, in a scene that I think if you can watch without coming to tears, there's something wrong with you, frankly. It was just such a beautiful, heart-wrenching scene. We see Nimona's origin story. And she told this kind of fake origin story when she was trying to make fun of Ballister for him needing to know, like, what is she? But we found out that her origin story actually has some basis in truth, uh, in that it is kind of based around a well. And it's that she just kind of was this little, like, force of energy kind of going through the world that saw a bird and tried to become a bird and be friends with it. And then the bird was scared. And then she tried to become other animals like fish and deer. And they were all scared. And then a little girl saw her and, and she turned into a little girl when she saw this other girl. And, and the girl saw her but wasn't scared and gave her a present. And the two became friends. And we get lots of and, – and the little girl is clearly Glorith. And we get lots of scenes of the two of them being happy and frolicking and playing. And I think they're supposed to be implied as sort of like, you know, they are best friends at a prepubescent age where they could very well grow up to have a romantic connection. But it, you could read it either way, I think, and, and both readings are completely fine. At one point, uh, Glorith wants to get an apple and Nimona turns into a bird to, to get her the apple. And she, she's really worried that Glorith is going to freak out, but Glorith doesn't. And now they have great adventures with a little girl and her shape-shifting friend, and, you know, she gets to ride her as a horse and play in the woods as a gorilla. All kind of these great things. Until Glorith is, like, you know, frolicking with her friend when her friend is a bear, and some adults find them and get very scared and point all these swords and things at her and say, oh, you're a monster, you're a monster, Glorith, come be safe, you know, get away from that monster. And and here's the moment that kind of really breaks Nimona where – Glorith listens to all the adults saying that's a monster, and that becomes more powerful to her than her own memory of this being her friend. And at first, Glorith had said, no, no, she's harmless. She's my friend. But now Glorith, like, picks up the sword and says, go back into the shadows from whence thou came. And so this is kind of all the pieces have now fallen together. We understand everything. And, and I think this just – it breaks Nimona. And Nimona – turns into this huge, huge monstrous form and comes into town, breaking everything. But what we realize is, and um, content warning here uh, for descriptions of um, desire for extreme levels of self-harm. So if that's not something you want to uh, hear talked about, probably skip forward a little bit. And we'll try to give content warnings again, but it will be a topic that comes up again. But anyway, it, what we reveal is that what Glorith wants to do – sorry, what Nimona wants to do is she comes to this statue of Glorith holding this huge sword 
and she wants to drive the sword through her heart um, to, to end it all. And and she starts to do so, but Barrister is now back, and he he prevents her from doing so with his mechanical arm. And they kind of reconnect, and he apologizes, and, and this leads everyone to figure out the real truth, that these aren't monsters, that they were the heroes. Uh, but in kind of, it, it seems at the end, like, she has had to end herself to, uh, you know, destroy the wall and kind of bring freedom and glory to everything. And so... People are living kind of happily ever after. Everyone's remembering them as heroes. Uh, Ballister and Ambrose are now clearly together again. And then in the last, but but it, but Ballister's clearly sad because he thinks Nimona is gone. He doesn't know if she's she's dead or if she's just kind of gone back into the primordial nature from once she came or whatever. But in the last scene, he goes back to his uh, his sort of old hut and he looks sad and dejected. But then he sees the kind of purple light that often surrounds her. And we hear her voice say, boss, and he says, oh, uh, and is about to say an expletive when we cut to the credits and the music. Uh, so did I miss anything? Uh, obviously, there's a lot of good details. It's a hilarious story. I missed a lot of the fun parts, but did I cover the most important parts of the story? Yeah, you covered most of it. Nice. All right. Well, so let's let's talk more about um, what is it about the story that really gets you? So... Oh, big question to start with. So I think that this story, and especially the changes made from the comic version of this story that we originally mm. saw, um, do a really fantastic job of updating the queer story that it always has been to right. the modern era and what presently is facing the queer community at large. Um. There's a lot of pieces that we can draw direct parallels. So um, a core part of the advertising, a core part of Nimona's initial message reaching out to Ballister was that they'll make you look a villain. And once they see you as a villain, that's all you'll ever be. Right. Um, and I think that that really strikes a chord with a lot of people these days, especially in the transgender community, but in the queer community in general, mm-hmm. that the vilification of the queer community can dig so deep and that becomes all anybody knows about you, all a stranger will see. Yeah. One thing I was really struck by when watching this is thinking about all these posts you're seeing where people will take the smallest little thing and twist it and twist it to make it seem horrible. Uh, I was just reading about a case where two women were were out in the park and they kissed and a child was present and her mother got them arrested for sexual harassment of a child, you know, and and there are the stories we hear about drag brunches or transgender people where things will be taken wildly out of context. And to me, it is so baffling because all possible evidence is like there is no grooming within the queer community. Well, there's grooming in every community, but the idea that the queer community has a grooming issue more so than any other community is complete hogwash, that there's nothing inherent about LGBT uh, you know, queer rights or queer pride that is in any way harmful to children. In fact, we're the ones defending children who are so often put at risk by by homophobia. And yet, people will see real life examples of this, but then still fall back on the ideas they're taught. And to me, with both Glorith and Ballastar, you get that of 
they have a lived experience of Nimona being a feral goblin child who often talks about wanting to murder everybody. But actually, like, you know, there's a number of opportunities. Like, we never actually see her kill someone. We see her talk a big game. We see her want to hurt people for pretty good reasons. But, like, you know, there's a scene where she talk, turns into a cat. She makes a big deal about, like, dropping a rat into her mouth. But she intentionally drops it just to the side of her mouth. And we see clearly she doesn't harm the rat. But with both Glorith and Ballister, when the myth comes back to them, when all the other voices come back to them and say, that's a monster, they're willing to let that idea override their own lived experience of this person. Right. And so there's a parallel from the original source that I want to talk about in a bit with regards to like expressing grief and, and the ways that people will lash out. But something I want to get to specifically relating to that story you told about the, the news article, um, the women arrested in the park. So the director, uh, the director of the Institute who trains knights, makes a speech at one point about her nightmares, this scenario that she has lived and run through her head since childhood of a crack in the wall that she she tells everyone, look out, look out, there's a crack in the wall, and no one will listen to her, and it grows and grows and grows until suddenly the monsters are upon them. And it's done in this very, very convincing way where you can tell that the director has herself fully terrified at the concept of lowering your guard for a moment, any crack in your vigilance, and that's it. The monsters will come for you. Yeah. And so that idea, I think, of the like imagining harm, imagining threats, and working yourself up about it to the point that you fully believe that you are making the difficult decisions to protect yourself and to protect other people. That you have to, because no one else is willing to make those difficult decisions. That's, I think, a very, very poignant parallel to the... uh, anti-trans and anti-queer backlash where people genuinely convince themselves that they are doing this for the benefit of the public, for the greater good, no matter their harm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really true. And I think you can see that with everything from like the the bathroom fears to the the sports athletic fears, things like that. And I I do think the fact that um, the way the director is presented and the fact that you know, one of the whole points is that I think Ballister and Nimona have so much in common. You know, and in this regard, it's a it's a story you've seen a million times before, where Nimona is the person who's been suffering the oppression all along. Ballister is the person who has just experienced the oppression for the first time, and they're going to wind up teaching each other because she's going to teach him that it's much worse than he thinks. He's also they're going to teach her that there is some hope, that, that there, she can be loved and that they both can be loved. And I think there's a really great tension between the two. And I think the fact that the, that the director has both – is the embodiment of both of those prejudices, both the fear of the monster and the fear of the peasant. The fear of Ballister as one of the knights is very, very intentional because it's um, – and, and the fact that I think that Ballister is 
uh, uh, portrayed as a person of color um, it is not incidental here in a world that is not entirely, but it's primarily made – and the director is portrayed as white. And obviously, this is a fantasy world and it's not to you know always project the, the racial or sexual or gender politics of our own world onto that one. But the, the author, Andy Stevenson, uh, who also – he wrote um, Shira and wrote uh, – uh, Lumberjanes and some other great stuff, you know. I think he's always been made clear in a lot of his works that yeah, he he wants to comment on, uh, you know, he might be commenting on sexuality, on gender, on racial politics, and all the same. And 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 so part of the point is that not not that they're all the same, but that the the walls that protect, you know, uh. The walls that, that are protecting from, you know, gender or sexuality are the same walls that are protecting white supremacy or the same walls that are protecting patriarchy, et cetera, et cetera. And the idea that the director is, as you said, quite literally so scared in a crack of any of those walls it is very intentional. Yes, absolutely. They um, The story does not make any sort of overt racism explicit in the setting. Um, but even looking at other lines from the director – during the uh, jailbreak scene, when the director and the knights left behind at the Institute are sort of picking through the rubble, um, she comments that the knights are squabbling like common children. Um, she, she says, rallies them all to say that we are born to protect this kingdom. It's in our blood. We have a descendant of Glorith to lead us. Yeah. She, she hammers home repeatedly that knighthood and the mantle of protecting the common good is a matter of blood and nobility and those born to do this. And it has very much that bend to it of the same white supremacist, the same racial politics that we see in real life being propped up by exactly the same folks who have issues with the trans community. Exactly. Now, one of the other beautiful things about the story is not only is it – I think the queer and the trans allegory goes deeper because it's not just about that the hate is the same, but Nimona as a shapeshifter, the way she spoke really read to me – I mean, for me, as a, as a non-binary person, I really identified with it. Um, and I'll speak about that as well, but I'd love to give you the mic first. Like, how did that part of Nimona's story resonate for you? Uh, her being a shapeshifter? Yeah. Oh, that well, part. The way she talks about it, and like that, that right. she gives a great line about how it, it itches to stay in her skin as a girl all the time. Yeah, absolutely. I saw so much of myself in the way that Nimona talks about the sort of itch to shapeshift, the itch to like become something else. She comments that like if she tries to hold in her shapeshifting, then she wouldn't die, but she wouldn't be living. Um, yeah. And credit to the editors, there is in the background of that scene, actually a trans flag visible in one of the buildings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but like, as someone who is gender fluid myself, it speaks so much to my experience of like, sometimes I enjoy presenting a certain way, putting on a, not even mask really, but putting on a certain facet of myself. And other times I'll prefer a different presentation, a different voice, a different way of posturing that isn't 
pretend. It isn't a mask. It's different, but it's still me. And that's yeah. really important. And that's done so beautifully in the way Nimona shapeshifts and specifically talks about her shapeshifting in that all of it's her. She right. sometimes is a bear and sometimes is a rhinoceros and sometimes is a shark, but she's Nimona. Yeah. And that's the thing she keeps saying every time Ballister tries to pin her down. You know, he keeps saying, but okay, but what are you really? And and her response is, I'm Nimona. And, and he gets mad. He says, that's not a real answer. And I think part of the point is, it is his ignorance, but I think we're supposed to understand that, like, he is being challenged, but he comes to understand it by the end of the movie. And in, in I think, one of the most beautiful parts of it, that what he says to her right after he stops her from uh, pushing herself onto the sword, he sa- the first thing he says is, I see you. And that, to me, is such a beautiful sentence because what he's saying is he sees all of her. It's not that he just sees the girl or he just sees the rhinoceros or the whale or the bear or any of it. It's that he sees all of her and that she is Nimona. And yeah, for me, that also really resonated because I – for me, I don't think of myself as fluid necessarily. But the need to put myself into a specific gender box has always really – not worked. And it's part of why non non non-binary and queer, because kind of the box of not being in a box. And in a weird way, I also feel this in something that is not related to my gender at all, but is a fundamental part of how I appear to the world, which is when I put my prosthetic leg on and when I go out in a wheelchair. Because I am perceived as fundamentally differently depending on those two things. And sometimes I am in control of that. Because I just am like, this is how I want to be seen today. And sometimes it's, okay, well, actually, like, my leg really hurts or I'm going to a place that I can't use my wheelchair and it's not something I can control. So it's not a perfect metaphor by any means. But it's fascinating to me how much people will perceive me differently based on those things and will often think of me as, oh, you're, you're, you're normally this, but you're sometimes that. You know, that, so, like, my normal state is being on two legs or my normal state is being in the wheelchair and the fact is, neither of those are true. I'm I'm, adapt- I'm adaptable, and um, yeah. And so for me, that also just resonated so hard. That idea of absolutely stop trying to put us into a box. You know, trying stop stop trying to feel safe by thinking everything can be put in these neat little boxes. Absolutely, I love the the bit about like normally I'm this, and sometimes I no no no. The conversation between Ballister and Nimona when she is pressing him to accept her as his sidekick, and he says, can't you just be you? I don't follow. Girl you. And she's like, but I'm not a girl. I'm a shark. And that, like, like you said, challenging that idea of there being a normal state and a not normal state. All of it yeah. is her. Yeah. Even to the point where at one point she becomes a boy. And she becomes a boy, I think, in that moment for very clearly strategic reasons because it's a disguise so that she can manipulate people in the like, oh, look, I'm just a cute, harmless little boy. But she doesn't say, I'm going to pretend to be a boy. She's just like, now I'm a boy. And I yep. think that line was, again, very, very intentional. Right, exactly. Ballister, and now you're a boy. And her response is, I am today, not. I'm pretending to be or yeah. anything like that. Just, I am. Yeah. For now. And I think one thing it also really spoke to is this idea that 
you know, so much of the debates today, and this is not only like the attacks from the right, but I think just as people are trying to figure themselves out, that term exactly, I think there's often a sense of like, oh, I need to learn what my true gender is and everything else was wrong, or I need to learn what my true sexuality is. And I think, you know, and I I don't identify as, as fluid, so you can probably maybe tell me if this is a misapplication of the term. But part of what I understand it to be, both in terms of gender, but also can, you know, fluidity can ap- uh, apply to uh, sexual orientation. It can apply to a lot of things. You know, is, is the person who would say, "Not, oh, I used to think I was bisexual, and now I realize I'm a lesbian," but say, "Yeah, I was a bisexual in my twenties. Now I'm a lesbian. Ten years from now, I might be something else." You know, and I think um, similarly, you know, people can be that. Like, there are people who I think like they know what their gender is. They're, they need to do things to make sure that their body matches their gender or I should say make sure that the way people perceive them based on their body is going to match what their gender is and that's a whole other can of worms. But, you know, and, and I'm not I'm not by any means saying like, oh, no, everything is fluid. I think for some people, like they know exactly what their gender is and it might conform to their uh, sex assigned at birth or it might not. But for other people, their own – their gender itself is going to be fluid and, and that that's another – part of the discussion that we don't often leave room for of, yeah, a teenager is going to be this when they're a teenager and maybe they're going to be something different in their 20s and maybe something different in their 30s and or maybe they're going to be something on Tuesdays and something else on a Thursday. Absolutely. There was a fantastic post to that effect I remember seeing recently that really stuck with me that was a response to the idea of uh, sexuality or identity being a phase and their response was, well, yeah, it is a phase, but like the moon goes through phases, water goes through phases. Show me anywhere that there is a permanent state of being. And I really liked that, that sometimes people do explore their gender or their sexuality and land in this is me, this box is like matches my experience and it is as close to my own definition of myself as possible. And that's great. And there are plenty of people out there for whom the identity or sexuality changes, even if it's fixed at some times and then later they discover something new or people who genuinely fully believe themselves and feel that they are their gender assigned at birth. And then that changes. Yeah. Um, there's definitely like there's a degree to which people rally around specific labels or specific flags as identity and those are very helpful for describing shared connection with one another Mm -hmm. um but i think it's important that people don't pick a new box to put themselves in because there's always going to be people that there is never a large enough box. There is never a perfect way to define all of the walls to surround the inside is me and the outside is not me. Yeah. And I think that's the story is very intentional about that both being the personal struggle, but also, like you said, the outside is the inside is me. The outside is not me. That's also the walls of the city that they're in. And this whole idea of Glorith did this and so it's fixed in time. This is going to be a weird analogy, but I think it makes sense. Uh, I, I'm from New York City, as I will frequently talk about. And I, um, 
you know, kind of like uh, an Irish immigrant and that I, I love my home and I will never tolerate it to be disparaged and I don't ever want to live there again. Um, but I, I went back to New York a couple weeks ago and every time I go back, I see the parts that I love and I remember and I'm like, oh, this is what New York is supposed to be. And then I see the things that have changed. And mostly I see that, you know, a lot of people who didn't grow up in New York are moving to New York and changing things. And a part of me grumbles about that and goes, oh, you're not real New Yorkers. You don't know how New York is supposed to be. But part of what has allowed me to change that is realizing, like, my mother moved to New York as a young adult, as did most of the people who are doing so now. And that the New York I grew up with isn't what New York was always and forever until it changed. It is constantly changing. And my grandparents probably were horrified about the New York that my parents helped to create. And and on and on and on. And that's the thing, is I think it is very easy for us to look at things exactly as they are now, or maybe as our parents told them that they, they were, and say, therefore, that's how it always is, and that's how it always should be. And 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 we want to kind of like fix a moment in time instead of realizing it was fluid all the way up to this point and it's gonna continue to be fluid all the way forward. Yeah, absolutely. And it's difficult to admit to being wrong, to admit that the things that you know about the world might be incorrect, that your parents taught you about the world. That's a big part of Ambrosius's struggle in the movie, too, is that he is trying so hard to be the knight that everyone expects him to be as a descendant of Glorath. And so it's difficult for him to question the Institute or to question the systems that surround him. It's difficult for Ballister as well, but he gets a little bit more push from Nimona on that. Mm-hmm. But challenging that concept of what you grew up with and what you're used to is so core to this movie. Yeah. And let's talk more about that specifically. Um, uh, a... Uh person on Twitter who I follow quite a lot, the negotiator, uh, uh, Omar, that, that's his name. Uh, uh, the, the actual name is the negotiator at the negotiator 95. I'll have it in the, in the show notes. He's constantly talking about how this movie has a very clear anti-establishment, you know, question the institutions around you bent to it. Uh, what, how do you see that playing out in this movie? Yes, absolutely. That's one of my favorite parts of this movie is that, um, Nimona and uh, Ballister sort of balance each other in the duality of um, the system can't be reformed, tear it down, versus um, we can make this work, the system works, people need to have faith, it's just a bad actor, we need to deal with the right. director. So it's very much the sort of rebellion versus assimilation that has been a queer struggle for the entire time there have been queer people. Yep. Um, the, the idea that some people will aim to um, fit their identity and fit how they present themselves into a majority non-queer society um, and assimilate for their own comfort and for the comfort of others. And some people are so radically queer, so radically different in their identity, that assimilation isn't possible. There's no way for their identity and who they are to fit the existing pattern. So I love that that's a focus of this movie in a way, that 
Ballister's belief all the way up to the director's like correction video of this wasn't me. The, mm-hmm. um, all the way up to that point, Ballister believes, no, no, we can't shake people's faith in the Institute. We can fix this. Yeah. And Nimona, on the contrary, is, is trying to tell him, no, there'll never be a place for us in this city. Right. And, and, it, oh, sorry, and there's actually a really beautiful moment where that flips at the end, where Ballister tells, this leads back to what you mentioned very early in the episode about the two of them teaching each other in a lot of ways, hmm. where Ballister reaches the, the realization that there'll never be a safe place for us here. We have to abandon it. Like we have to leave the city, go over the wall. No one will change how they see us. And Nimona says, well, you changed how you see me. Yeah. We shouldn't have to run. And so that's when they decide to make a stand. Yeah. And I really appreciate the way you framed that because there is a great deal of specificity to how that conflict has played out within queer and trans and gay and lesbian movements. But it's also one that in some form or another plays out in almost every justice movement you can find, you know, um, it, it, it is often reduced to Martin Luther King versus Malcolm X, which is not really accurate, but there definitely were those two sides in a lot of the civil rights movements, in a lot of the feminist movements. Uh, you look back at the union struggles of, you know, from the late 1800s all the way to the 1940s or 50s, and you had everyone from capitalism is great, we just want more capitalism, to let's tear down capitalism entirely. Like, these are always – and I'm a big believer that most movements need the two of them in tension, but a lot more of the like, let's look at the problems of the whole institution. And one of the things I really love about this is that I think it also – another aspect that it adds is that the amount that you are willing to question every part of the institution often is directly tied to – how much privilege has the institution give you, given you? Because Nimona is the person who, I mean, the entire institution was quite literally built against her. She's never seen the good in this. Ballister is someone who he was able to find his way into the institution, you know, but, but notably, we don't ever hear him saying, so now we should, like, now that I become a knight, we should tear down the idea that only nobles can be knights. And and maybe he says that off screen. We don't know, but I think it's. I I think it it says something that we never say. He he has someone I think bought into the idea of not that it's wrong to think no peasant can ever be a knight, but you are an exceptional peasant, and we should acknowledge that some peasants can become knights, etc. You know, he's somewhat bought in, but then once it's only once the system turns on him that he's willing to question it as well. And as you said, Ambrosia. he never really he, – he has always been benefited by the system. The system is what has told him that he is so good and wonderful. And, and I think the movie it, – it's amazing. It's only like a 90-minute movie, but it gives us these three very powerful character arcs for all three of them because he gets to go through this moment of having to see a challenge not because of what it's doing to him, but because of what it's making him do to a person he knows he loves. Uh, right. That um... – Ambrosius has this really powerful moment, his like finally realizing what's going on when during the the Nimona's 
um, march on the city, um, he sort of looks around himself at the cannons turning inwards towards the city itself, fire, mayhem, panic in the streets. And he questions, what are we doing? Yeah. And that's his moment, exactly that, like you said, of like, for him, it was very much, it took realizing what he has been made to do by his support of this institute. Yeah. The, he plays into it and keeps going along with it, even as things get more and more distasteful, even as he's forced to turn on his love. And he begrudgingly lets himself be sort of dragged along doing worse and worse and worse things until finally it snaps. And he realizes this is what I'm supporting. You're right. It is such a beautiful moment and and everything about the way he turns makes so much sense. And and, and I think in his journey, we also see another element to this that I think is, again, a very intentional metaphor, which is that even when the director is exposed, we see the director admitting on tape that she did all these terrible things, she's still able to get out of it. And much like, you know, we've seen people in our own world who have admitted terrible things on tape and no one seems to care because they're able to say, oh, no, no, it's just the, you know, the, those other people twisting it and all. And how is it she does it? By appealing to the ancient sacred text. She shows Ambrosius yes, yes. The, the text, which is kind of the, the Bible or the Constitution. I think those it, it's supposed to kind of represent both of those. The way people will look to those documents and go, oh, look, we can take this one thing, regardless of anything else, and say that proves the answer. And thus, anything that any fact, any statistic, any true story I encounter must be false because the, the primacy must be given to this document. And for Ambrosius, Ambrosia and, and even for Ballister, it's the knowledge that, like, well, we have the story of Glorith. And it's so interesting because there's a part of me that there's a part of me that really wishes we got more insight into Glorith's story. Because it is really surprising that she kind of goes from, no, wait, that's my friend, don't hurt her, to all these adults around me must be right. I pick up a sword and hold it at you and say, you're the monster, go away. And I'm left feeling like there's a couple of different alternatives. That it could be that she was kind of a, you know, and I, I, if she's a 10-year-old girl, I don't saying we should like you know, throw her under the bus forever. I think we can forgive her. But that she might be someone who is just very malleable to the voices of the adults around her. It might be that she was saying go away or else you're going to – I'm trying to warn you to run away so that you don't get hurt, but I'm going to do it in the language that they'll understand. We don't know. But I think, you know, another trope that it's calling upon is the, you know, two teenagers are, are discovered in a compromising position and one of them is more kind of clearly out and the other one is a maybe. It's not uncommon for the one to be, oh, oh no, no, she just, that, 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 that one seduced me. You know, it wasn't my fault. And like, is that supposed to be what this is speaking to? Is it supposed to be something different? I don't know. And a part of me wishes I did, but I think actually it makes the story even better that we don't. Because the whole point is that not only does Nimona not know, but all these people who have built their whole society 
on what they think Glorith meant, I have no idea what was actually going through her head at the moment. Yeah, I really liked the origin story with Glorith because that's actually novel. That's brand new for Netflix. The original comic did not include that. Um, and I think that they did a fantastic job with how that works, how the, like you were mentioning before about like the sacred texts, the like, yeah. the mythos of Glorith is the foundation for this entire city. So it can't possibly be wrong. So that's the, the banner that the director uses to shield herself from accusations. Um, but then also, that's playing into that that part of the story is playing into Nimona's comment to Ballister very early on when he says that he just wants to go talk to Ambrosius and figure this out and she makes a comment about like what you're going to trust the guy who chopped off your arm and he and he reacts really abruptly not angrily or anything but just hammering home he was disarming a weapon right and she comments oh they brainwashed you good yeah and the same with the the child's reaction to nimona the dragon saving her from a car about to crush her Mm. and the child still picks up a sword and points it at the monster because that's what she's been taught so I think that that's definitely, like, I can see what you mean about Glorith having the, like, the one foot in, one foot out reaction of, like, oh, I know it's safe if I back up my parents on this. But I think a big part of it is a uh, sort of visual metaphor for how, to this day, there's a lot of hate indoctrinated into children where it it doesn't take much for parents community leaders uh faith leaders teachers for someone who has an agenda to plant hate in a kid to show them that hating these people is the right way to do this is right because uh, because they're evil or because it's for the common good or whatever the reason is. Yeah. But that, like, children are so susceptible to being taught that hate. And I think that that's a big part of the parallel between us watching Glorith pick up the sword and point it at her best friend, Nimona. Mm-hmm. And the parallel with the modern day child who has her life saved and still picks up the sword and points it at Nimona. Yeah. No, I think you're right. And I'd say uh, it's very few children. Unfortunately, adults can often be just as susceptible to hate. And and these ideas, because I know what I keep going back to, it's that idea of the, once that framing of you are monster, thus you are dangerous falls in, all the other evidence goes away. You know, the little girl saw this dragon rescue her, but it doesn't matter. She's a monster. Glorith saw this girl play with her and be safe with her. Doesn't matter. Now she's a monster. And to me, I think that's that's the point that I, I think works so much with that that sacred text that it goes into is we don't see the whole thing, 
but I would bet everything I have that the moment that we see where Glorith says, wait, no, she's my friend, doesn't appear in the sacred text. We don't get that complexity. We don't get that nuance. We just get the moment of she held the sword against the beast, you know? And nuance nuance doesn't build tradition is the thing. You got to have a solid, sturdy foundation of us versus them. Yep. And it's one more place where the boxes, you know, it's just put everything neatly into a box. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to worry. Someone else has figured it out. And I think this, the whole story is just such an attack on all of that, on, you know, any of these ideas, which if you watch something like Shira, which is very much about like getting past our ideas of what is good and what is bad and who is the villain and who is not. And the mental ways that being perceived as a villain can, can tie you into knots and the trauma it can do. These are very similar themes to, to that. I think the author, that it's something he really cares about in both. Absolutely. And something else that I think is seen in both, um, that like is not really part of a lot of the conversations about Nimona at the moment. But something really critical is the the way that members of the queer community handle and process and 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 deal with their grief or their pain, right. um, because Nimona lashes out. She's aggressive. She is loud and proud and in your face. And anyone who doesn't accept that, she beats them up. Mm. Um, and the moment with um with Ballister noticing that she's been shot with an arrow and the tenderness that he shows her, the genuine care stuns her yeah. um because she's not used to that. And Shira has a very similar story where uh Adora sort of bottles herself up in not not expecting her true self to be accepted. And that means that she has to prove herself time and again and time and again, and she doesn't hold room for herself to be cared for. And that I think is a, uh, like those facets of how the queer community deals with vilification or deals with even potential vilification knowing that people will see you this way yeah and i think that's again one of the things of where the context matters so much because i think there again a beautiful metaphor of nimona as you said she, she lashes out but also she's just very she's very in your face about everything you know she doesn't want to be perceived as normal even when she's pre- even when she's presenting herself as a girl i should say that even when she is a girl she doesn't look like she, you know, when she appeared as a girl with Glorith, she had this long, beautiful hair and she looked very feminine. Here, she looks like she just came straight from a Clash concert. You know, she's got like short hair. She doesn't have piercing or tattoos, but like she looks like she could. Um, she looks very metal and, and her she actually is like metal. Uh, does awesome. have a good number of piercings. Um, oh, does she? Okay. Got- yeah, she's got uh, some spikes along the cartilage of one ear, a star on the other ear, uh, stud earrings on both. Oh, um, that, I, yeah, that speaks to me even more than I, I'm an idiot for not seeing that. But no, you're totally right there. Um, and yeah, I think that's that's the 
I think one of the attacks often can be like, oh, why do queer people have to be so in your face about it? You know, because as you said, there, there are some of us who want to have 2.3 kids and a white picket fence just with a person of the same gender. And then there are others who are like, no, I want to be very in your face about the fact that I'm living a completely different life than anyone else is. And I think that that this isn't to invalidate that at all, but it's to say that I think that that – because I think it's a very valid choice whether or not you've had any trauma. But I think part of what Nimona is showing is that she's kind of in a position of when the entire world has already rejected you, why wouldn't you reject the whole world? And why wouldn't you make it very clear to the whole world you don't give a damn what they think? Absolutely. Very much the like um, – she has a line at one point of uh, – Ballister, like, trying to calm her down, trying to ease her back from something. And she says, we're villains. Embrace it. Yeah. And, uh, like, that is just her character through and through is the in-your-face, I'm here, I'm loud, I'm proud. Yeah. And uh, so much of the queer community is that way, exactly. Because, like, if no one is going to accept you anyway, if there's no degree to which you can present a like palatable side of yourself um then why not why not just be comfortable decorate your body how you want tattoos and piercings do what makes you comfortable because your comfort like there is no degree to which you can make yourself comfortable to others Mm. so it's better to make yourself comfortable to yourself in many ways, I think of her character as kind of the living embodiment of the phrase, be, be gay, do crimes. Um, Absolutely. Both because like of the like FU factor of it all, but also like, you know, many people I know live by that phrase. They're not robbing banks. They're not mugging little old ladies. They're not actually like – it's much more about like rejecting the idea of following the rules, rejecting the idea of and, – and well as recognizing that there are an awful lot of unjust laws. And that, that, you know, and, and you think about it, what Nimona's first criminal act is to rescue someone who is, uh, unfairly imprisoned. And I, so, like, that idea of, like, yeah, it's doing crimes because, like, it's recognizing that there's a difference between justice and law, you know, or what's right and what is legal or not legal. Absolutely. Yeah. So much of, so much of Nimona's lashing out at the kingdom. There's a fantastic, um, fantastic detail that is easy to miss in the emotion of the moment. But during Nimona's, uh, march on the city as she is in her monster form headed towards the Sword of Glorith statue, even towering a hundred feet tall, she is not the one wreaking havoc on the city. She is just trying to get to the statue and all of the fire, the carnage, the broken buildings are the city lashing out at her. Um, and so there's definitely like, so Nimona is this like feral goblin child. She is this like rabid ball of energy. Um, But even in all of her lashing out and all of her like, look at me, I'm here, you have to deal with it. She doesn't do it um, to hurt innocent people. She doesn't do it 
to be evil. She does it because she's hurt and she's lashing out at the people who hurt her. And the city didn't hurt her. The Institute did. Yeah, I totally hear what you're saying there. And I think it is so vital, especially because it then takes us into a cycle that I think we see in the real world all the time, which is that people or society or institutions or governments treat an individual or or a group badly. That group responds and that, you know, and and whether it is a like organized protest or lashing out in anger or whatever it is, and then their response is what's remembered. It's, you know, look at the criminal element and not look at all the economic deprivation that has led to that. It's look at the way these people are breaking the law instead of look at the way that, you know, we backed them into a corner and that was fighting back was the only option. Uh, Absolutely. So yeah, that's that's the very like Ballister's approach versus Nimona's, the assimilation versus revolution approach, yeah. where there's so much of the pressure on the like the pressure on the queer community that comes from the left, politically speaking, is tone policing, is like you have to do this the correct way, the polite right. way. That will sometimes get results, but often takes too long or doesn't ever find results. And then often, and again, I think this is very intentional, so much of the way that the gay and lesbian movement and then the LGBT movement and then very grudgingly for some, the queer movement found that acceptability and found that tone policing is by tossing trans people under the bus, is by saying, let's work for the more, you know, it's easier to accept people living, just loving this one other person. You know, it's easier. And it's the same reason why, you know, bisexuals or polyamorous people or like anything that breaks away from, because again, always the, the question is always, society is built a box. Is the fight to say we want to be included in the box? Or is the fight to say we want to be given our own box? Or is the fight to say let's tear down the boxes? And, and that's where the conflict is always going to be. And Absolutely. Very much an argument for let's tear down the boxes. And I love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I like that um, in the original comic. So in the original comic, there's a sort of different setup. Um, the general framing is sort of the, the Institute is a villain and hero society that is shaped in that way to create a comfortable narrative for the public to understand in these conflicts. Mm -hmm. Um, And that institute is maneuvering these conflicts between heroes and villains to their own political ends. And and it ends in uh, not just the director being killed, but also in that entire institute being torn down. Um, and we don't see as much of that in the ending of Nimona, the Netflix film, but we do get hints of it where, so we see the, uh, gun placements on the walls being dismantled and brought down. We see the, uh, the knight in the park who is, um, still patrolling sort of for the public good, but is themselves disarmed as well the knight isn't carrying their sword yeah um 
And I think that that is not as explicit a message as the comic about dismantling the system of oppression itself, not just the bad actors. Mm -hmm. But it definitely is hinting at that, that like, it was not just the director who was at fault for this. It was the entire institute, and it wasn't the fault of any individual knight in that institute. So Ambrosius was supporting the institute, but it was not his fault that the institute was anti-monster. Same with Todd was personally kind of a jerk. Um, But he even has a moment at the end of the movie where he lays down a flower on Nimona's memorial. Mm. And his actions were supporting the Institute, but he personally was not a terrible, an unredeemable person or anything. Yeah. But even despite the personal, like, even despite no one person shouldering all of the blame for it, the Institute itself was the problem and had to be dismantled. Yeah, I think that's so true. And I think that's, again, it's kind of the point we're trying to get at with all this, because I think often that's where we fall. It's the, you know, oh, those were just bad cops. Oh, those were just bad soldiers. Oh, we just have a bad, you know, this particular billionaire is the problem, this particular individual. And and so often that's not the case. It's these, you can identify like particular people as as particularly you know, as more or less abusing the power they're given by a fundamentally corrupt system, but the system's still fundamentally corrupt and has to be torn down. We, I, we can keep going on this movie for hours and hours. <laughs> I want to uh, wrap this up pretty soon. I'm just going to make one last point and give you a chance to kind of make one last point, and then if you want to share anything else about where people can find you. Um, which is just – and this is something that um, uh, Nate uh, – Nate, right? Is how Stevenson yep, often – Nate, yeah. Yeah. And this is something that uh, can be found a lot in Nate Stevenson's work, Andy Stevenson's work. He said at one point that when it comes to the things he creates, you should just always assume the characters are queer unless proven otherwise. Uh, He really intentionally is trying to write a world in which homophobia itself does not exist. And um, in his version of She-Ra, I should be very clear, like he did not obviously create She-Ra. That goes all the way back to the 80s and He-Man and – but he wrote the modern version of Shira that's on uh, Netflix that is utterly beautiful. One of my favorite animated shows ever. Really one of my favorite shows ever. And he does in this something he did in other things, which is that there are all sorts of metaphors for homophobia and transphobia. But there's a queer couple in this, clearly, Barristan and Ambrosius. And the fact that they are two men who are together is never commented on or is a problem for anybody. Um the the one jerk character teases Ambrosius about it and sort of wonders, like, is the fact that you have romantic feelings for the people we think is a criminal, is that causing you problems? And implies that that might be why he's not a good person to lead the mission. And I think it's also kind of hinted at that, that he and others disapprove of the fact of a noble having a romantic relationship with a peasant. But the fact that it's two men is absolutely never commented on in any way, shape, or form. And I... I love that because I think it is it is it is a very different experience to see a metaphor for your trauma versus to see your actual trauma revisited on screen and more importantly to Absolutely. see your own trauma in a fantasy world and it's just it's something I wish a lot more writers and and creators could learn from of 
you can talk about issues without having to replicate them in ways that are just going to kind of be, you know, reiterating abuse where it becomes almost kind of, you know, exploitative or, or, or problematic for people to see. Absolutely. Yeah, this was a very powerful queer story about rebelling against the systems that oppress without actually having homophobia explicit on screen. There is no explicit anti-gay sentiment projected by characters in the movie. But nonetheless, that's still the story and the, the metaphor that's delivered. Right. Exactly. Uh, so that's my last thing. Any of the last things you wanted to bring up or mention? Uh, yeah, the one biggest thing that I wanted to talk about is the very stark difference in the endings of these two, of the the original print comic and the movie, and the way that I think I really appreciated the update. Yeah. And in the original comic, um, Nimona splits herself into yeah. sort of the the anger of how she has been treated versus her hope and compassion. Um, And I like that we didn't see that split here, that there is very much the message that like, you can hold hope and compassion in your heart and be always like, keep your heart soft, keep yourself open to others but still be appropriately, righteously angry and upset at mistreatment. Right. And that those are two sides of the same coin, not split decisions and different ways to handle something. Yeah, I think it really makes a lot of sense. And I, you know, my, my issues with graphic novels have been well documented on this. Not, not issues and I think they're bad, I just, it's not how my brain works. But I'm so glad you, you read that. Uh, my spouse also had, so she was telling me a lot about it, and I just love getting that additional perspective. Well, both this has been fantastic. Um, for people who are really enjoying having you on the podcast, I might want to find you in other places. Is there other places where you're creating content or just where your thoughts can be found that you might want to point people to? Uh, so I don't really have like a, a content portal or anything like that on the internet. Um, I can be found basically anywhere that people gather, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, Discord. Um, as minor deviation, mm-hmm. um, and always happy to to chat with folks who find their way to me. Awesome, yeah. We will have uh, links to those in the show notes. Uh, one thing, also knowing in terms of uh, 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 please don't cyberstalk people, but in general, just you know, wanting to know who our guests are. Uh, I'm not avoiding using uh, uh, any other parts of Bo's name because Bo's name is Bo, <laughs> uh, which I think a, a really awesome story, and I really appreciate how you have. Uh, it's kind of one more box of breaking out of the idea that people have to have two names. Uh, so it's another thing I've always admired about you and that people can find if they kind of read some of your stuff. I, yeah, of course, absolutely. I- There's, um, actually in that vein, that's another thing that I really appreciated. I know we've been talking too long, but really appreciated about Nimona's answer to who are you with just, I'm Nimona. And she yeah. sort of forces people to conform or forces people to confront the fact that boxes don't fit her. And that's a big part of my choice in a mononym that so much of modern society does not fit me because of who I am. Yeah. And giving people that 
five minute window into, huh, that's weird. How does that work? Is a fun way to get that ball rolling for everyone. Yeah. No, it's so true. And I think for me as a person who is both polyamorous and disabled, I'm constantly facing situations of the the world is built to accommodate a certain kind of person and I don't fit. And what happens when that happens? So I, I love that. Uh, so that is Bo. I, of course, am uh, Matthew Fox, The Ethical Panda. If you search for The Ethical Panda, most places you'll find me, but also the show note, the links are all in the show notes. Uh, Twitter, Facebook, email. I'd love to hear from you. Did you watch this movie? What'd you think? What was your feedback? What was your thoughts? Would love to hear from you. Uh, I have some feedback piling up. I'm going to, my, my goal for, I'm, gonna, I'm not even going to say now, but I'm saying my goal for the fall is that, my goal for the fall is that we're going to start doing regular feedback every episode. But for now, I'm just going to kind of let it build up a bit and get, uh, probably do a feedback episode in the next couple of weeks. But please keep sending it in. Let us know what you think about this movie. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, and of course, um, on theethicalpanda.com is where you'll find uh, the other podcasts I do and how to support us. Uh, Patreon is a wonderful way to support us. You get uh, ad-free episodes. Uh, most episodes, I won't, can't promise all, but most episodes are going to get bonus Patreon content, uh, which Bo and I are going to do in just a second. We will have a short Patreon section uh, where we're going to talk about some other kind of pieces of work that are similar to this. Uh, Bo has no idea what I'm talking about, so that'll be fun too. Um, but yeah, uh, you can support us on Patreon. You can support us also just by helping more people listen to it. Uh, do you have someone, a friend of yours, you've been wanting them to watch Nimona or you've watched it with them and want to talk to them about it? Forward them this podcast. Uh, tag us on any of the social medias. Let other people know about us. It's a great way to make things happen. So I hope you're going to stick around for the Patreon section. But if not, thank you so much. Have a great day. We have spoken. Bye.